guys. Welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a day for another interview, and I'm really, really pleased to have Chris Mitchell with me. Chris is a master of overcoming obstacles throughout his life, and it is only right that I bring such a man on because obstacles are part and parcel of life. Challenges are part and parcel of life, and they can either destroy us if we let them, or they can build us and make us to what we really desire to be. And so why not listen to someone who from the word go had to fight and is now a very different man and is using the challenges and obstacles he overcame to his advantage. So Chris, thank you so much for coming onto my show. Thank you very much for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Chris, your story starts even before you were born. Do and of course you don't remember this far back. If you no. do, <laughs> if you do, then you're really good. Yeah. <laughs> but, so so we take the the the, the tertiary kind of information that your mummy has given you. Tell right. us what happened before your birth. Before I was born, my mom was a physical education and health uh, instructor teacher, and I don't know if they have a different word for that in New Zealand, but that's what she did. And she was working in the schools while she was carrying me during my uh, her pregnancy with me. And one day at school, this is what she tells me, not that I'm discrediting it, but also from what she believes. So I'm not stating this as a fact, but this is what everyone does believe did happen. One of the kids came to school in one of her classes that was sick probably had some former measles and that passed on to me into the womb where I developed complications at birth and my disabilities from the rubella syndrome. My mom was only sick for about one day. It seemed like morning sickness. She called the doctor and he said, don't worry about it. It would pass. And it did. So my mom did not get sick, but the germs did pass along to me in, in the womb and I was born with complications from it. Uh, rubella is the, the medical term for the German measles there. Right. And rubella is unfortunately something that can create great, great damage to the infant in inside the womb. Um, tell us a few of the, the things that you were born with, please. Well, um, let's first talk about what I was fortunate, and I'm not putting anyone down, that I did not get born with because this could have also led to deafness and mental retardation. And those two things I do not have. And I thank God for that. Hmm. Uh, I do have, I was born with cataracts. So my vision is 2200 in my left eye and 2300 in my right eye. I'm unable to read out of my right eye since my birth. And I was born with a constricted aorta. Now I also have a speech impediment. They discovered when I was like two or three, when I started talking a severe speech impediment that required me to go into speech therapy before I entered preschool. I cannot 100% say that was from the rebella syndrome, but I can't rule that out either. I also have ADHD. And then throughout my life, my constricted aorta caused some other health issues, which are you ready for me to share that now? Or should we hold that off? Okay. Okay, because I've had to have multiple surgeries. I was in the hospital the first month of my life. I had to have corrective heart surgery throughout my childhood. I've had cataracts removed twice. And one of the things with my heart was my last surgery was in 19... 
the 1970s when I was in grade school, elementary school, and then I did not need another one until I was in my mid-30s. And I was engaged at the time, and we needed to do an ascending to descending aortic bypass because of the constricted um, aorta from birth defect from the rubella syndrome. And it led to me surviving an ischemic stroke to my spinal cord while I was in the hospital during the surgery. So I'm unable to run, walk, or even stand without the help of mobility equipment. And at first, I lost the ability to feed myself, turn myself from my own bed. And many of the activities for daily living, each and every one of us takes for granted. So for those of you out there who don't really know the, the, the anatomy, the aorta is the really big blood vessel that comes from the heart and supplies all the organs with oxygenated blood. So it's right. really a cool thing to have. Now, if you have got a narrowing in there, um, then that is not so cool because anything below the narrowing will give you, will, will be starved of oxygenated blood and anything above that narrowing, there will be a high pressure because the, the, the body recognizes them. Blood needs to go down there and no blood is coming. So therefore the heart pumps harder and harder and harder. Now, the problem of course is where the aorta runs is directly in front of the spine. And if you need to do a bypass, well, that means that actually the blood vessels that at every level of the spine come out and, and support the spine might get interrupted. And that is exactly what happened here. And the next thing is basically a stroke of the spinal cord. And you were unlucky that you actually got that. But uh, listening to what the surgeons had to do to keep you alive, uh, it is uh, it is maybe not a surprise, let's put it like that. Yeah, I, I was told there was a risk of that after my stroke. And I thought that would have been nice to know before. But then again, <laughs> I, they gave me all these papers to read. And I started reading the, the DNR, the, you know, all of those things. And I went, this can't happen to me. And I just signed everything without reading it, which I should not have done. <laughs> but if, I also like to say that if I had known that, would I've had the surgery? Probably. But there were some things that happened before the surgery that maybe should have been a red flag. I, for like two months before the surgery, maybe three, I was having trouble walking. My legs got so numb, I could not even physically walk. I went to my primary care physician's um, a f a physician assistant which I hate that. I'd rather see the doctor, but we won't go into that in America. It's kind of, um, it's like you only get to see the doctor if you're dying now. It's horrible. And, and I told them the symptoms and this guy said, uh, you're wasting my time. That's a cardiac issue that will be taken care of in your surgery. And I foolishly listened to his words and instead of, um, you know, talking to my cardiologist about it or anything. I had another episode in Anaheim about a month before my surgery and they offered to call an ambulance. I live in, I lived in Northern California, Anaheim's near Los Angeles. And I said, no, thanks. I'll be fine. It will pass. And if they had done that, maybe somebody would have done a Doppler and found a blood clot or something else mm -hmm. that could have prevented it from happening. So there's a lot of things that could have happened. I also, the day before the surgery, I met the anesthesiologist 
And I know in, in New Zealand, it's anesthetists, but we call them anesthesiologists here. And no offense to you, this guy was a jerk. I, he would ask me a question before I finished it. He interrupted me and he said, no, that's not the way the surgeon's going to do it. And the surgeon briefed me on it like two days before, and I remembered it to the letter. I don't know all the medical terms, but I remember what he said he was going to do. And I was very uncomfortable with them. And this instinct told me that night. You know, call the doctor, reschedule this. You don't like the anesthesiologist because I believe the anesthesiologist has your life in his hands, literally. And I wanted to do that and I didn't. And that night, we, my wife, at that time, fiance, we went to Putt-Putt, which is miniature golf here in America. And we went back to the clubhouse to return the clubs and all. And I looked out the window watching people putt-putt. And the strangest feeling hit me. I could not get the thought out of my head that people in a wheelchair cannot play putt-putt, miniature golf. And I could not get rid of that thought. And ironically, a few days later, I'm in a wheelchair or a week later, I'm in a wheelchair. And I'm wondering if that was something telling me you need to postpone this surgery and that I didn't listen to. Yeah. So many things to say about that. I mean, the first instance, uh, you, you should not feel like that if you're an anesthetist. We tend to be the nice guys. And there's, there's good cop and bad cop kind of thing. The bad cop cuts you and the good cop looks after you kind of a thing. Um, that's how I like to believe that my job works. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm facetious here. My, my, the way we play here... I make them well sure that I see you before the operation, well before the operation, that you can get a, a good idea if I'm a big numbnut or or if I'm actually um, trustworthy. So I think that is something that happens today. I think your surgery was a few months ago, wasn't it? Uh, no, it was actually in 2002. Oh, okay. Not so long ago then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. no? Fair call. Fair call. You would have expected that by then, actually, people are are a little bit more astute and aware of the feelings mm -hmm. of patients. So I'm sorry that you had this this well, experience. You. That's that's not right. Um, as far as the intuition goes, God, there is so much to be said about that because uh, again and again and again people have had strange visions deja vus things like that and and yes there is more out there that we can that we can know there's more out there so and and i certainly had guests on my show which were very much saying the same sentences as you and made a strong, strong point that nowadays they listen to their gut. They listen to whatever the cosmos or God or whoever they believe in is telling them uh, to do. So it is what it is. And it is, it is, of course, a huge slap in the face, a, a, no, a hit in the face with a two by four uh, repeatedly for you, because here you were a young man. Um, you had overcome so many challenges as a youngster, and you are now a man living his life to the fullest. Obviously, uh, the girls like you. There is, there is this one special lady who is already playing putt-putt with you. 
And that is not an acronym for something. That is just no, it isn't. <laughs> At least not here in the states. <laughs> so I don't know about down under. <laughs> no, we don't go down under. No, 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 no. no. This, this is this is a nice show. Come on. Okay. <laughs> no, no. What I'm trying to say is, uh, you you had started to be successful as a man. You you lived your life. Uh, Maybe we should go a touch back before that all happened. Okay. I mean, you you started as as a youngster on the back foot, but you how were you in school? How did that work? All right. Assuming I know what the word back front means, which I don't. <laughs> back foot, <laughs> the back foot. Back foot. Okay, I'm sorry, the back <laughs> foot. Okay. Um, I with my ADHD, I had a lot of behavior problems. Mm-hmm. Anyone who knows me is going to say, I never thought that would happen to him. But I did. I, I was in the principal's office regularly. I, I started out in one elementary school. And by the time I was done with second grade, they were done with me. They said, go somewhere else. So I, I wound up in a different elementary school in third grade, from third to sixth grade, every single day. Without fault, I spent at least 30 to 45 minutes in the principal's office. Some days I enjoyed seeing him so much, I saw him twice. Some mornings I saw him before the first bell even rang. I was in there all the time. I was always getting in trouble. Junior high, I, at middle school, seventh, eighth grade, same thing. And ninth grade, uh, the 10th day of the school year, September 11th, 1980, which was my grandfather's birthday, I got expelled from kicking from high school from kicking the principal in the leg. See, he wanted to give me Saturday morning detention. My mom would ground me. I had a plan. If I kick him, he'll be scared and he won't give me detention. Well, the plan backfired. It was not a great plan. It came from a 14-year-old, and I wound up being expelled and was placed into a school with kids with other other kids who had behavior problems for two years. I worked through that, got back to the same high school I was expelled from, first kid was, that was ever allowed to do that here in the school I went to, and made it on honor roll for one quarter of my, I believe, junior year of high school. Brilliant. And graduated with my peers. Brilliant man. What turned you? What changed you? In ninth grade, when I was expelled from high school, whenever I misbehaved all the way up to that, my parents, who are very wonderful people, they they came from my mom was raised by a single parent, her dad, and my dad was an accident, meaning that he was 17 years younger than his brothers, and his parents were up there in the years, and his father was a truck driver, my grandfather, my dad's side. So they really did not know what to do with the child that had ADHD and bouncing off the walls. So when I misbehaved, they would say, you're such a bad person. You're wow. I'm so disappointed in you. I, you know, all those negative things about me. So I expect, I thought that's expected of me to be a, a, a screw up. And then I had a teacher, Mrs. Lyons. Whenever any of us misbehaved in her class, she calmly said, like a mantra, I like you. I don't like your behavior. And that changed my life. Beautiful. The most beautiful saying you could have just said. Mrs. Lyons, if you're listening out there, good woman, I want to come out there and give you the hugest hug because that's that's what is needed. Ah, oh, is Mrs. Lyons still alive? Do you know? 
No, I don't. Uh, we did not have social media like we do today. I would love to have been in touch with her. And I pray that she is alive. And I'm eternally grateful for what she said. And that stuck in my mind my entire life. And I never forget it. It's beautiful. And it's it's spooky because I'm right now I'm working with a children's book author, and she has uh, we are creating a, a mindfulness children book, and it's exactly the, the 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 words that are being used, the speech, uh, where it is so important to distinguish between bad actions and being a bad person, and oh, it's so beautiful to hear that. And because that's the same, if you ex if expand that and extrapolate that now to where I've been, addicts, we addicts are often enough actually quite nice people. But what we do is not so nice and often disgusting because of our addiction. So that does not mean to say that we are disgusting people. And I think that right. is such an important, important parallel there. Please. So here you are uh, at school now, actually having graduated against all odds, literally against the odds that everyone gave you uh, because of your, your, what did your principal say? Was he there at the graduation? He probably was. The principal that I kicked and the principal I was assigned to, yeah. we had three principals because we had probably one, uh, nearly a thousand kids in my oh, wow. 500 to a thousand kids in my graduating class. So wow. times four, you know, <laughs> so there were many, uh, that incident happened four years earlier. He did not say anything to me, but when I did come back to my, my home high school, after my expulsion, I got in trouble. Once I smarted off to a bus driver, he was going to report me. I reported myself to the principal before he did. And I, I got a little, lecture from him and we went on our merry ways and i did not get in any trouble no he did not say anything to me at the graduation um i don't know if he even remembered the incident but uh it was it was a, a emotional time when i graduated my grandfather just died on my mom's side three days before my graduation ah uh, it never rains it pours <laughs> yeah oh uh. What were the plans thereafter? Well, my plans after graduation, I did not have a party or anything. I was not in the mood for it because, you know, grandfather passed away. But the following Monday, I started college, which was very interesting for me. I decided to take a summer course. And, and you've been to college, at least here in the States. We have in the fall and the spring at that time, 18 weeks. The summer, they cram 18 weeks into six, which really makes it intense. Number two, I decided my first course would be um, pre-algebra, which is hard enough to begin within 18 weeks, cram it into six. Number three, I had a wonderful teacher. She's a great lady and I'm not trying to be racist or anything like that. She was Asian and she had a thick accent. So I'm trying to do a pre-algebra course that I should do in 18 weeks in six with a lady that has a thick accent that's hard for me to understand. I managed to get a C plus out of that course. And I was, I would have liked a higher grade, but I was happy with the C plus with all those um, challenges that I had in that first college class. And there is the next lesson. Sometimes better is the enemy of good. Okay, a C plus. It is. Yeah. It gets you through. You have got that course under your belt. Okay, mm -hmm. you know it is. 
I mean, my my math teacher always tried to convince me that I should be a mathematician. I seem to have had a bit of a knack of it, but that does not mean to say that I would throw myself into uh, a free algebra course. <laughs> I think you had balls, man. You have balls. <laughs> <laughs> but, but why why that why pre-algebra what what did you want to do uh, well my my goal was to go into radio broadcasting and it was one of the requirements to take some math courses i thought i'll just get that done this summer it's just numbers i mean i don't have to memorize anything it's not like i got to remember facts and form mm-hmm. facts from history or scientific formulas or mm-hmm. or i have to read war and peace in three days you know <laughs> it'll be easy just numbers then they showed me the letters and I never really got the idea how one plus B equals eight. I thought, how do you add a number and a letter? And it was a stumbling block for me. <laughs> they don't coexist. Fair call. <laughs> Fair call. I think a lot of people who will listen will just nod their head now and will say, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> okay. So radio broadcasting and math. Well, I didn't know that there was a link, but obviously they wanted to, to give it a bit more of a challenge. Um, what else did you need to do in order to qualify or to, to get into radio? Well, to get into radio, you really do not have to go to college here in America. But I, my parents wanted me to go to college. I thought, you know what, um, might as well give it a shot <laughs> and meet some people. And, okay. and also I had to take the general ed courses, which is like some math courses, some literature courses, some history courses, uh, obviously some radio broadcasting and mass communication courses. So those are the things that I was required to do to get through college. And I worked at the college radio station, which is really what I wanted to do while I was at college (laughs) and did that and and made some connections. Then about a year in, my parents, who I was still living with, decided we're leaving St. Louis, Missouri. We're moving to Northern California. And we moved there and I went to another college and worked in there radio station while taking more college classes but because of my ADHD and my inability to really focus on stuff if it does not interest me I don't do it <laughs> which I gotten better at that over my life but at that young age I if hey this is boring why why do I need to know who won the war of 1812 I wasn't there and it makes no impact on my future so I was not the greatest student and I struggled in college um, was all often on academic probation and embarrassing almost two decades later, I was still in uh, the first two years of my college and I was very close to having a double um, AAAS in computer science and in radio broadcasting because I got hooked into computers. And then I had an unfortunate incident that got me expelled from college and that ended my college career. Just like three classes away from having my AA and AS. So obstacles, obstacles, obstacles. But, I mean, something must have made you tick. Something must have given you strength. What was it? What was, what was your, 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 I don't want to say poison. What was your, your, the spark that kept you going? Well, always being a fighter uh, because of the challenges from my childhood, I wanted to do everything that anyone else could do, just like my peers. I 
my parents, we had this old rotary phone. I don't know if they look the same there, but you put your finger in, you dial the number, and click, 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 click. And it has small numbers on it. So they got this overlay, which is a piece of cardboard, to go around these numbers. That makes the numbers bigger and easier for me. And I told my parents, I refuse to use that. And they said, why? It will help you. And I told them, because the world is not going to be made with adaptations for me to be able to see. I got to learn how to do this like everybody else who has normal vision and because of that kind of drive and determination i've had since my early childhood to not let anything stop me from what i want to do that is what has kept me going and got me through every challenge not to mention my my personal faith for god and and uh, right now well not right now but probably for the rest of my life my wonderful supportive wife who was my fiance during my stroke just always those two those things as well as always looking for inspiration i love inspirational quotes i love uh, feel good movies those kind of things if somebody else can do something that has a worse condition than me i sure as heck have no excuse for doing what i need to be doing it's beautiful okay i feel the same i feel i feel nowadays the same having said that in the past uh, i was certainly not as strong and i relied on crutches i relied on uh i i wanted to no how shall i say that i've achieved a hell of a lot in my life but equally i used a hell of a lot of crutches such as alcohol for far too long and i really did never learn until seven years ago uh, how to look after myself and how to have a balance, how to live healthy, and therefore create even more sparks of, of initiative, of creativity, of spirituality, you name it, of all the cool things that nowadays make me tick. Whilst in the past, it was head down, try to get over the hangover and get on with life. So it is, it is a very different, different thing. So I'm really uh, in awe of the positivity that you maintained through that time. Then you were heading towards radio. You were heading towards, uh, towards your career. Uh, that would have been, when are we talking about now? What, what years are we talking? Uh, Y2K plus yeah. one. So okay. 2001. Yeah. How was the working uh, in, in radio? I know certainly in other entertainment industries, it is full power, high power stress, and mm -hmm. then uh, hard work and hard drinking goes, goes along. Was that the same in radio or was it more, more benign there? My radio career, let's be very honest about it, was not as not as robust as it could have been and should have been because I also have some self-esteem issues. I had a father who um, was a functioning alcoholic and very verbally abusive to myself, my mother, and my brother. My brother wound up, uh, wound up um, getting killed after getting addicted to drugs by uh pointing a loaded gun at a police officer, which believe me, folks, don't try that. It's not a good idea. 
you don't win those. So I had a lot of self-esteem issues. So I really did not put myself out there as much as I could have and should have launched my radio career. And I'm glad I didn't become so much happier doing what I am now. I did work in college radio. I was a part of two different commercial radio stations, morning shows as a regular call in participant in their program. I also helped co-host. I worked in an internet company as an internet service provider company as a customer service rep. And that company had a Saturday morning call-in show where listeners can call in and ask any questions they have about computers. And I was a co-host of that program, taking calls and answering questions. So I was not working for a quote unquote paid radio position, but I was on the air. So I cannot really speak to, um, what the life of being in radio was because mine was more of a tippy toe into it because I did not have the confidence to really put myself out there and try to get an actual job in radio, which I, I regret losing those years of not having that self-confidence I needed for my success, but I'm glad I am where I am today because I cannot be happier doing the inspirational, motivational writing, speaking, blogging, and podcasting that I do today. And that is, again, a beautiful way of showing that in order to survive, you have to adapt and change and roll with the punches at times, mm -hmm. but learn from the lessons and, and get off, dust off, get up, dust off yourself and find a way forward, which you have. So you were... You were dabbling a bit in the in dabbling is the wrong word. You had several uh, jobs that were paying a bit the bills that were getting you, you know, allowing you to live. Uh, and then you had you started to getting these symptoms in your legs, and it was getting clear. Hang on, you needed this operation. So, how young were you then? I was 36, and I prefer to look at it as young now that I'm 54. 36 mm. is young. When yeah, I was exactly. 18 or 10, somebody said, he's 36. Gosh, that's so old. <laughs> when you're 54, 36, that's so young. You I don't know, know anything. Absolutely. And you <laughs> don't know anything. Oh, come on. You don't know anything. At least I didn't. I was right. still bulletproof, and I was still full of testosterone and, and doing stupid things. God, but that is then, that was then. But we had a show here in America called ER. I don't know if it ever made it over to your country. Unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I love that show. And I thought, this is a great show. And it started in 1994. And I thought, this is great. These are, not that these the things happened were great, but I thought, wow, well written. But none of this could ever happen to me. Then between the end of the 2001 season, 2002, that summer I had my stroke, I watched ER after it. And I, it was different for me. It's like, wow, this stuff could happen to me because that stroke changed me from feeling that I was invincible mm -hmm. to making me realize uh, I am not invincible. I, I do have a, a expiration date somewhere in the future and I better start living more carefully. <laughs> I try to wrap out that expiration date. I just, uh, I, I work on that and try to push it out as much as I can. Oh, I do too. <laughs> but I know it's there. I no longer believe I'll live forever. I, I, I got that. Yeah. And it's actually quite scary. This I did uh, two years ago. I, I started a real estate property investing and I went to a course and the guy there asked us to take a piece of paper 
and uh, draw lines on it and make basically 10, 10 uh, columns across and 10 down. Then he said, rub out the last 16 uh, squares that you have got. So you now I've got 84 squares. Yes, that's your average life expectancy. And now I want you to scribble out the, your age. And suddenly there were not so many lines left. And I actually had to say, hmm, okay. And in, I'm, I've just written a workbook for My Steps to Sobriety. And this is one of the exercises in there to make you realize, actually, uh, maybe you don't have as much time as you think you have. Another big lesson to learn there. Now, the scary part is if you have to say, can someone spot me a few lines? I'm running short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm already above beyond the line. <laughs> yeah. I always thought when you're 86, what happens then? <laughs> yeah. No, I think the reality is it is you just don't know what tomorrow brings. No, you don't. And I think that is with COVID, we have we yes. had to learn that because everything we took for granted suddenly is topsy turvy. We I live in Rotorua, which is a tourist mecca here in New Zealand. And it completely wiped out our tourist industry. Um, yeah. It is very, very challenging. And it's it's beautiful. Things are still running. How long? How? We don't know. We are lucky because there is not much COVID at the moment. Mm -hmm. We got the odd cases that try to sneak in from the border, but we are actually very successful in, in stopping that. But it's just a matter of time until um, something comes through the our our defenses yeah. so we don't know and i guess there is a there's a parallel here that i quickly want to draw upon here you were as a baby being born with what in all reality may very well be a partial rubella syndrome and that was because one child has come sick to school and inf infected your mum now, there are some, some scary parallels here because at the moment, you guys over there are reopening your schools. Uh, oh, yes. Some of them. Scary. Scary. And it is just very, very hard. There is no right answer. There is no answer, especially nowadays in societies where the parents are not uh, close by, where the, the children have to go to school so that mom and dad can go to work and bring some money in. Right. Uh, and and it's, uh, there are so many, so, many, so many facets of that problem, please. There is, there is every, every family will have their own unique challenges there, but I think it is just, it needs to be said that there are 10, 20%, 11%, I think was the most recent figure of children that have got antibodies and have got, have got uh, COVID-19 and they don't show really any symptoms. And it is very, very scary. So, sorry. Here in America, a um, couple of things. One, I understand I, I'm not into medicine to the extent you are, but I've heard you can be asymptomatic, which means no, no symptoms showing for up to two weeks and carrying COVID and infect other people. We had some schools open here in the state of Georgia and within the two weeks, they had to shut everything down. They had in-person meetings because 1000 kids were already in quarantine. It's horrible. Uh, I, I, 
I don't really want to get into the politics of this, but I really do not think the school should be open for in-person meetings. I think the online education is better. The problem with that is that some parents, let's say California, that's a very expensive economy there. Both parents have to work and a lot of parents use the schools as a daycare for the kids so they can go to work because mm-hmm. if they one of them stay home, they're, they're homeless and they can't do that and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And you're right, there's no easy answer to this. Mm-hmm. But just raising the awareness, I guess, is the thing because people are still blasé about it. They are still relaxed about it. Oh, look, there's only the old will die and the young will have a bit of a sniffle, etc. But there are things like, I mean, you had a stroke due to to your surgery. We know that younger age groups uh, who are affected by COVID do develop strokes uh, of the brain and strokes of other organs. So it is uh, it is far far more serious than your government uh, wants you to believe. I think that's yeah. that's the fair call. <laughs> that's a polite way of putting it without getting into the horrible, this is the worst um, presidential year that I've ever lived through campaign-wise. We're having an election in November. It's horrible. It's stressful. It's tense over here. Mm. It's not a good environment. And getting kind of circling back to a point that I I believe we both would like to make is the comparison between the COVID today and what I went through is protect yourself and protect others. If people would get the vaccines, the ones that are recommended, they can save their kids. They can save other people. If that kid had a vaccine or if he did not come to school that day when he was sick, I might not have had the disabilities I had. I don't blame him. And there was a reason for them, but we can all do our part to do that. And with COVID, we really need to follow the CDC here in America, the CDC, probably the World Health Organization guidelines everywhere else, but follow those guidelines and trust people who are doctors, who, especially those who have studied infectious diseases. We had a meme I found on Facebook the other day, even on Gilligan's Island, they listened to the professor and not the millionaire. And that has very significant meaning here in the United States. And I won't go any further into that. You Americans know what I'm talking about. Everybody else in the world knows what you're talking about. And I feel sorry uh, for you. But Thank I guess, you. but this is not this is not a political show. No, but it is. No. It it draws so many parallels. Whilst we are talking about obstacles, we are often thinking about about things that we can't do anything about. In this particular setting, we can do a hell of a lot. The mm-hmm. social distancing, the mask, the hand hygiene, the right. reducing viral loads, all these kind of things. So there is guys do it. Don't don't be stupid and don't don't stand on your on your second amendment uh, right. of, of I I no no I've got the freedom of doing everything. I hope I got I, the amendments right. If it's the first or the second, n- n- no, I, I, second is I believe the right to bear arms. And oh, I do apologize. <laughs> no, 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 that's another discussion. Don't walk around with guns, please. No, people are saying it's against the constitutional yeah. rights to yeah. be told to wear a mask. And I look at them and said, okay, then that means if it's uh, you should not have to wear a mask, I should walk into my local McDonald's wearing no clothing at all because that would infringe upon my constitutional rights to make me wear clothing in public. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and then the visual scares them away to run far from me. <laughs> at least there's, you got quick service. I mean, there's only yeah. so much that you typically American can stand. 
Yeah. But you're, you're talking to the German. Come on. We do everything naked. We do naked parachuting. Okay. So come on. <laughs> Anyhow. We're a little bit more modest over here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. We are choking around here. But I think the fact is that when times are really hard, laughter is sometimes the only thing that, that mm-hmm. pulls you through. The gallo humor, the the sarcasm, the cynicism, because if you were to think really hand on heart what is happening, and you're essentially powerless about certain things, the only thing you can do is do comedy and turn a very dark spot into something where there's a bit of a silver lining. Is that does does humor and comedy play a role in your life? A very big part of my life. Um, I've always loved joking around. I love comedy TV shows. I love morning radio, which is really used to be really funny here in America. Now it's gotten kind of raunchy. But I love comedy. It's always gotten me through difficult times. I have a very quick wit. Uh, People will say, and I'll even say this too. I'm in an organization, it's called Toastmasters, and at times I have to introduce people who are speaking. And I tell them, you want to give me your written introduction because if you don't, I will ad-lib. And trust me, you will never know what comes out of this mouth. And there are times that uh, if we had a little, what we have here in America, a little buzzer, I go, when somebody uses an inappropriate word, that would have been needed at maybe one or two of my introductions because I can get a little bit, not vulgar, not not profanity, not not, uh, pornography, nothing horrible like that, but I can get a little bit out there. And yeah, humor has always, humor has always been a big part of me it gets me through all my difficult times in my life because i figure if you can't laugh at something you're going to get depressed and i do battle with and i have um seasonal affected depression so i try to always be up and bouncing around and happy to ward off the the depression and the sadness so true even in the darkest times when i was hitting the bottle typically uh, i would sooner rather than later end up in front of my computer and would listen to an hour of Robin Williams or would that's right you know stuff like that and I would laugh until tears ran down my face uh, despite the fact that I was in the deepest dark hole but it was it was uh, that that little rescue ring that life ring that uh, that was there for me in in dark times God. No, so good. So humor, that was one spark. So I'm slowly, slowly figuring you out there, Chris, how you how you went about your life from obstacle to obstacle. But I mean, so far you're painting a, a very a very pretty life. Pretty in the sense of I'm a fighter. I there's another obstacle, I will overcome it. That's it. And you you sound analytical in the way you are. But somehow I think there is only some part that you show me here. I cannot believe that the first month after your spinal stroke, you would have been in that that frame of mind. I don't think for a second that that you were untouched emotionally by that. That, that's correct. Uh, there was not a lot of joking 
during that first month, there was a lot of worry on my part. I was engaged. I was going to be married in less than a year. I was fearing I would be spending the rest of my life in a long-term care facility, which is not the happily ever after every bride and bridegroom envisions. So there was a lot of concern and worry. I tried to remain positive. My fiance tried to remain positive, but there were times that I broke down and I cried and I, I wailed. There was one night in particular, I was in my hospital bed and it was, uh, I was not in the rehab yet. So I was still in the hospital probably the first week after my, my ischemic stroke to my spinal cord. And I was unable to move. I could not even shift my body and turn in the bed. So even though they had fans in the hospital room, I was sweating and I was miserable. And I woke up from my sleep, from a cold, dead sleep. Maybe that's not the best word in the hospital, but a deep sleep. And I was screaming. I can't turn myself. My fiance was spending the night in a very uncomfortable chair in the room. She hears me screaming. I can't turn myself. I need help. I'm just an object. I'm just a coffee table with uh, tears streaming down my eyes. And it was one of the lowest points for me. But I knew that if I was going to overcome this, I cannot have pity for myself. I cannot let this get into my mind where I'm nothing but a burden of the other people. I'm not going to be able to do stuff for myself. I knew that was the wrong mindset. And I started changing that mindset. And the other thing that uh, motivated me was something my fiance said, because in America and probably worldwide, when something like this happens, two things can happen to a couple. It can bring them closer together or it can destroy the relationship. And my fiance said to me, let's push up the wedding date. And what she meant was push it back. And she was going to move it back a few more months for me to get stronger. And I said, no, we're still going to get married on June 7, 2003. And I'm going to be there. And that actually made me even more determined to say, let's get the negative thoughts out of my mind and let's focus in on what I can do. Yes, the things I'm scared of, I don't want to ignore those because I'm going to use those to give me power to get stronger. And that's what I did from that point. Beautiful. Was there a support service in place with regards to emotions and, and dealing with the trauma for you? Ironically, at that time, I lived in California. And because of my disability, we have here what's called supplementary security income, which helps people who are disabled, who are unable to work because of the physical or whatever disabilities. And I was receiving supplemental, supplementary security income. That's a phrase you cannot say fast unless you want to break your tongue. And being on supplemental security income, I also had what was called Medi-Cal which is like government insurance. Now, and everywhere else in the world, government insurance is great. That's what I've been told. In America, <laughs> it stinks. And so I got the, the, the bottom of the line health coverage. And there was no, and I should have gotten a social worker. I should have gotten uh, psychiatric uh, advice because I've learned from other people who have injuries similar to mine, spinal cord injuries, that you really should get some counseling to begin to like your body, how it's changed. I got none of that, but I worked through that on my own. So I consider myself a pretty strong person, mm -hmm. despite the fact I had really crappy insurance. How did you say you, you worked through that? I mean, where did you, do you got the knowledge from? Did you, did you meet people? Did you, did you read books? 
actually, I one day I was in the rehab hospital and I went into the dining room because we're all supposed to eat in the dining room, not in our, our room. So I wheeled myself in there or my fiance pushed me in there. But there was a mirror on the wall. And I said, you know what? I got to get used to how this has changed me. So I made myself look at myself in the mirror and become comfortable who I was. And that was mainly what really did it. And at the time that my my injury happened, we had a police officer in, in, the, in the community I lived in. His name was Officer Stephen Mays. And he wound up in a horrible, horrible car accident pursuing a suspect. And he was in what they called an awake coma, which he let, lived in that state for about eight or nine years. And, and from what I understand about awake comas, you're awake, you're aware, but you cannot communicate. And and I woke up after my surgery, which I hated. Hate vents, and I, 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 you know what? I could have it a lot worse. I could be Officer May in a weight coma, hearing everyone talk to me, but not being able to say a word to them. And and I thought, I may not be happy with what I have, but I'm a lot luckier than other people. There were people. I was on the first floor of the rehab hospital. First floor people get to go home within a month. Second floor they say. I'm, little bit more than a month, maybe several months. Third floor were long-termers. Most of those were in vegetative state. And I was very grateful every single day that I was not on that third floor. And that gave me strength to realize, you know what, this happened. This is horrible. But, hey, it could be worse. I'm going to take what I got, and I'm just going to plow on forward and, and make a success of it. Wow. Indeed. I mean, that is how I look at things and how I sometimes wish others would equally go out there and compare their plight. But it's one thing to say, oh, that's a really good idea to do that. It's a completely different thing when you are in a mess and you can only see your own suffering. You can only see your own emotions. You can only feel your own pain and you don't give a toodle what someone else's pain is like because your pain is so overwhelming and overpowering so uh, there will be quite a lot of people out there who will have been in that boat and i guess what i want to say to you guys out there the listeners and the viewers of this youtube channel there is help out there so chris has done it the hard way because of his setting where there was no insurance, or uh, even if there was insurance, they were actually the, the the little the little little wheels of the machine were not working together. So whilst you had all the reasons to get a psychiatric support, you didn't get it for one reason or the other. Same with the social worker, etc. That is actually something that shouldn't happen, but unfortunately, it is what it is. So these things do happen. That does not mean to say that you should not keep searching and hunting and do never, ever, ever give up. There are many people out there, there, there are nonprofit organizations who volunteer their, their time, their work. There are people out there who are in the same boat as you, regardless who you are as a listener. It is If it is PTSD due to sexual trauma, there are a lot of women and men out there who have gone through the same and their counselors specializing in that. Find them, talk to them, 
Don't suffer alone. Don't suffer in silence. Go out there, find the support, because the support is available to you. If it is the shame and guilt of drinking or using drugs, well, 20% of the population are out there in the same boat as you. That's one in five, okay? So do not give up. Look around, and there will be places, there will be people who you haven't met yet, but who have gone through the same and who are there to help you. So guys, talk to your family physician, talk to your GP, whatever is affecting you. Do not suffer in silence and do not suffer alone. Chris, man, here, let's talk about you now because now you are the Chris version 2.0 or probably by now 5.0, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, I would say 5.0. <laughs> Each decade I upgrade myself, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's, that's, sometimes I want to press the reboot, but now it is, no, no. I rather upgrade because the reboot <laughs> yeah. means you have to do the same stupid decisions again and the same yes. outcomes. So I actually don't want to do that. I no. rather want to 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 do the 12 steps in a sensible way. Look what still works. Keep that. Those things that don't work, chuck them and find some new stuff that infuses me and, and gives me the creativity and spirituality and all the cool, cool things that, that make me tick nowadays. And that brings me to you. What makes you tick nowadays? What makes me tick these nowadays? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to start that answer over again. Because I had a frog here. What, what makes me tick nowadays is the the adrenaline rush I get of doing podcasts, of writing, of public speaking. When we're able to do that again, I do some virtual speaking. I have an event coming up pretty soon. I'll be doing, or probably have done by the time this airs, and. It, helping other people and inspiring other people to overcome whatever their it is in their hat. For those that are listening and not watching on the video, my hat reads, It Doesn't Define Me, which is the title of my book. And that came from an experience that I had uh, after my stroke. I ran into some people who knew me before the stroke and their jaws almost hit the floor when they saw me in a wheelchair. And that hurt. It really did hurt me. And I, I went by myself and I, I was out of my wheelchair and I looked at it and I told myself, I'm not going to let this define who I am. I'm going to show the world there's more to me than this disability, this wheelchair. So I started to say, it doesn't define me as I pointed at the wheelchair. And that became my mantra, my model. It doesn't define me. I'm going to break the stereotypes people have about dis disabled people. I'm going to show them there's more to me. I want people to describe me as, well, he's an author. He's a writer. He's a blogger. He's a speaker. He's a podcaster. He's married. He's a fun guy to hang out with. He has a unique, quirky sense of humor. Oh, and by the way, he's physically disabled. And that's my goal. And that keeps me going because I really want to be that type of person where the last thing people think about me, if they even think it at all, is that I have a physical disability. What would you write? What would you write as an epitaph on your headstone? Well, <laughs> this comes from my sense of humor. I have two or three ideas. <laughs> One, I'd rather be breathing. <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> yesterday was the last day of the rest of my life, 
And you can't spell funeral without fun. Oh, <laughs> nice. 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 There's a song out there by the Chad Mitchell Trio called A Dying Business. I don't know if you ever heard it. Go Google it. It is a wonderful song about this funeral director who was able to rack up a $40,000 funeral bill. This back in the 60s, early 70s, by having the, these contest whoever grieved the most won a brand new chevrolet he wanted himself it's a hilarious song i want that to be played at my funeral and i also want to have uh, send me to glory in a glad bag played <laughs> i don't want anyone crying at my funeral i liked it I liked that a lot. But seriously, what I like to have people to remember is he never met a challenge he did not embrace and overcome. Nice. 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 Powerful. And I guess that is that is another good lesson to do. Write down your own obituary and see what comes to your mind. And if you can only identify yourself as the doctor or the lawyer or the whatever your profession is, then there is something wrong. Mm, alarm signals. Now, good. Wow. Tell me more what you, how you change lives today. Tell me about your podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Well, <laughs> I love how you ask that. Like, you have amnesia or something because you were the very first guest on my podcast. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I don't want to play my own trumpet here. Come on. <laughs> you were my very first guest, and I cannot believe that you could not remember the name of my podcast. You donkey. Which I just put up there on the screen the hashtag Define Yourself Podcast, empowering you to succeed. We launched it on July 25th. The first episode would just be my first guest was somebody's name who I cannot remember for the life of me. Don't know who he is. He stalked me. He harassed me. He held my cat hostage until I interviewed him. And so, we did. I, my cat's back home. He's safe. He's fine. Don't worry, cat lovers. The cat is doing great. I had, had to do what I had the, to do, okay? <laughs> we had to take him to the kitty cat psychiatrist, but he, he's overcoming the trauma. He still trembles a little. But, so, uh, yeah. so, yourself. <laughs> so, I've been called a lot of things, but a kitty cat uh, anarchist. He, he, I don't know. <laughs> he was... Actually, you're a cat burglar. You stole my cats. <laughs> my cat burglar, right. <laughs> Again, I've been called much worse. So I can live with that. <laughs> but the okay. mission of the Define Yourself podcast is to empower people to overcome whatever their it is. And everybody has an it. The it could be a physical disability, a visual disability, a mental disability. It could be alcoholism. It could be drug addiction. It could be a divorce. It could be loss of a loved one. It could be shyness. It could be insecurity. It could be anything. Every one of us has an it and every one of us can overcome it. And we bring people on with various it's to share what their it is. Get them, get the listener to connect with them, especially if they have the same it and say, yeah, that's me. Then we get them to share the story of how they overcame it, what they're doing in their life, get them to give advice on how they did it, what they would tell somebody who was, who's at the point they were months or years ago and find out how to connect with them so we can help build their following and their tribe of people. That's what we do each week on the hashtag define yourself podcast available at define yourself podcast.com. Hurry supplies are limited. 
<laughs> oh, you're a master of your trade, aren't you? I love it. So, and that means also anyone out there who is uh, doing a podcast about anything such as overcoming challenges, well, hit this guy up, okay? Chris is a good yes. dude. <laughs> right, define yourself. And it is so important because define yourself actually means that you have to do the hard work. It's not let other people define you. No, it's right. actually you define yourself. You create the vision. You create, therefore, the mission. Turn that V into an M and go out there to make that happen. So I, you figure it out, learn from people like, like from Chris or from me or from the people that we bring onto our respective shows because right. we both have got the same wish, the same desire. We want to, to spark your your future. We want to jumpstart, to catalyst your thinking into something where you say, yeah, okay, this is worthwhile living. Now, you're mentioning define yourself and we all should do that. And I love that. And the reason I came up with that name, which everybody loves, by the way, is I meet so many people who say, well, I, if it wasn't for my disability, I could do this. Or if it wasn't because my dad didn't hug me enough or tell me that he loved me. I would not be on drugs and I would not be in jail today. Stop blaming other people for where you are in life. Accept where you are. Accept what's your fault. Forgive those who did you wrong. Forgive yourself and start making changes. I don't want to hear excuses. No. The excuses are for losers. If you want to succeed and overcome anything, drop the excuses, make a plan, and say, I'm going to change my life. It's in my hands. Don't give somebody else power over your life. They can really screw up your life. No, you can screw it up on your own. My parents told me that when I was a kid. Uh, or you can make it very successful. It's up to you. But never give that power away for somebody else to control and steer your life. It's in your hands. Don't give that to anyone else. You deserve better. You deserve to be in charge. You deserve to define yourself. That's, That's right. Exactly. No, I love it. Love it. Love it. No, that's brilliant. Your book is out there on Amazon and as a hard copy, I assume? Yes, it is. It's on both Amazon and a hard copy. And my book is entitled, It Doesn't Define Me, hmm. How I Survived uh, an Ischemic Stroke to My Spinal Cord. It shares the story of how, how it happened. Not the medical stuff, because I'm not a doctor. I'm not as smart as you. Hmm. Um, but it does do it in more layman's terms. And it talks about all that I went through, how, how it affected my life. Some of it I shared here today. There's some other cool stuff in the book I've not even mentioned. So I really encourage you to get it. I wrote this book about 10 years after my, my excuse me, stroke my spinal cord to say, you know what? It's 10 years, been a decade. And I wanted to see how far I came. So that's why I wrote the book. And I wrote the book for intention for a certain demographic. Everyone should read it. It's a great story. But I met some people in the rehab hospital who had strokes and they were unable to communicate. And I wanted to be able to put into the book, if you have a loved one that went through a stroke, spinal cord injury or anything like that, I wanted you to be able to get into their mind, my mind, which could be a scary place to visit, but it's a safe place in this book that you could find out what their emotions are and maybe you can understand them better. So this is great book for anyone going through any challenge, whether it be alcoholism, whatever it is, or anyone who has a loved one. I want to better understand what it's like to be in their shoes going through that battle the book is available on amazon is also 
and Kindle and paperback. And it's also on my website. I as an inspirational M motivational Chris Mitchell.com. You buy it from my website. Um, it, here in America, we ship. If you ask me real nicely for New Zealand and willing to pay the postage, I'll ship it there and I'll ship it with an autographed copy of, of it to you. So oh, check yes. out the site. Yes, please. Yes, please. That is a must because normally I take a great pride of reading all the books of my guests, but I've had so many guests recently that I'm stuck well behind in these books because most of my guests are authors or have done other cool things and they've all got cool things for me to do and read and, and, and absorb. And so I do apologize, Chris, I actually haven't yet read your book. But uh, word yet, because that means you're not eliminating it. You have it on your bucket list. That's a good yeah. word to use. Shit, yeah. Uh, and I will be delighted to read it and leave a review out there. So now, brilliant. Chris, thank you so much for sharing today all your passion, all your experiences. Uh, no doubt many of them painful with hindsight. But thank you for sharing your thoughts and, and the the force and the the things that helped you to overcome these challenges. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Hmm. And I hope your listeners and viewers got something out of this that's going to make their lives better. Thank you very much. And you guys out there, no excuses. Go out there, build your own life, make that little tiny step in the right direction and go out there and live your life with the passion that you deserve. Look after yourself. Bye. Bye.